Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. And here we are at part 10 in our series on the book of Exodus, which is the penultimate episode in the series. In this episode and in the next, as I close off the series, I want to look at the central theme, which is that of seeing God's back. This is actually an idea from much later on in the book of Exodus in chapter 33, but as I see it, this idea is really central to how we understand what, what Exodus is about. So by the end, we find that Moses has an increasingly more intimate relationship with God. When he first encountered the divine presence, he was really shaky and fearful and pretty distrustful. But the journey he has been on has shown him a thing or two. And, and we find in Exodus 33 the idea that Moses even came to speak to God face to face as if to a friend. This is obviously a metaphor for intimacy as we realize um, very soon that this is not supposed to be taken as a strictly literal idea. Moses spoke to God as if face to face. But Moses, who is rather familiar with reticence, feels that God is holding back and so he asks God if he can see his glory. The Hebrew word for glory here is kavod, which means weight. Moses wants to experience God's weight rather than, say, the, the kind of diet version or decaffeinated version of God, so to speak. At the most basic level, this is a request to know more deeply what has already been known, to, to gain greater access to what has already been accessed. But the request is somewhat complicated too, as God points out to Moses with words to the effect that if Moses actually gets what he asks for, he's not going to be able to handle it. If Moses really sees God's glory, he will evaporate into the ether, or to use a different metaphor, be crushed under the weight of glory. His being will become non-being. There's something in this of that infamous line from A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. And in some sense, this is right. We, we all take reality in as we are in keeping with our capacity for it. None of us is actually capable of drinking reality neat. God, being love, wants to affirm created being, and showing up without self-censoring would be akin to a kind of negation of his own love. He would, instead of affirming created being, end up destroying it. But God says to Moses that there is a consolation prize. What he'll do is he's going to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock and cover his face with his own divine hand. And when the time is right, he will pass before Moses so that Moses will have a chance to see God's back. Over the centuries, the rabbis have interpreted this idea in various ways. One of them is that this is a reference to time. It's the idea that we will often struggle to see God in the moment especially when the proverbial banana hits the existential fan, but we will find it easier to see him at work in retrospect. This is kind of the idea of hindsight being twenty twenty. What we fail to recognize now will dawn on us later. I think all learning actually happens like this. You know, it's, it's a process of accumulation that results in some kind of insight. Otherwise, this seeing God's back idea could mean that Moses sees the afterglow of God. In other words, the place where God just was. This is the idea that the divine is always perceptible in the world, albeit indirectly, since everywhere is a place that God just was. After all, 
all things are called into existence at every moment by the divine voice. Another way of thinking about Moses' request for God's glory is to think of it, as some rabbis have done, as a plea to know God as fully present. But the story echoes the general trend in, I think, the human experience to know only God's absence or to tend to uh, be overly familiar with God's absence. This is less uh, a tragedy, I guess, than, than it is really a gift. And sometimes it is precisely the felt absence of God that reveals his glory. This allows us, for instance, to read the famous cry of dereliction by Jesus on the cross, which is, My God, why have you forsaken me? as an indication not of God's abandonment of Christ, but of Christ's entering into the divine embrace, into what some mystics have referred to as the divine darkness. The absence of God is only felt because of a presence that is real. This is perhaps an odd but useful way of conceiving of some modes of atheism. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about something that Simone Weil describes. Um, she, she says that atheism can be a form of purification, whereby the atheist in the throes of unbelief is actually closer to God than the fundamentalist in the grip of, of know-it-allishness, I guess. I have actually been thinking a lot about presence and absence recently since my, my grandfather passed away a few weeks ago, and that's left a, a huge gaping hole in the world that I've known. There's something extremely painful about losing someone you love, of course, but then there's also this very strange fact that their absence is precisely a sign that they have been present. The void is not so much a vacuum as it is a kind of paradoxical fullness. It's horrible, obviously, but it's it's also, in a weird sort of way, profound and comforting. It's, it's as if the void is weightier sometimes than presence. I'm probably not explaining this very well, but um, more or less, my, my grandfather's presence created joy and, and wholeness for everyone who knew him, which I guess is not something you get to say about everyone uh, you lose. But it's made me think of this moment in Exodus a little differently. The afterglow of God is, is like the legacy of a great man who has departed. The source of so many good things is invisible, but the consequence is nevertheless very, very real. Sometimes the consequence of that presence, which is no longer felt, is a deeper sense of the meaning of that presence. And I think in, in a way this, this reminds me somewhat of Nietzsche's proclamation or, I guess, uh, Annunciation of the death of God. I don't think Nietzsche ever meant that as a kind of literal thing. I, I think he was pointing out that when there is this vacuum, this sense of absence, there are a number of possibilities that are laid open for us. One of them would be to, say, kind of fill the vacuum with all sorts of nonsense, uh, as Nietzsche declared the kind of last man view of things. But another way to, to approach it is to revalue values, to, to try and reclaim things that were really valuable. What so many commentators do with Exodus 33 is point out that Moses wants to know what God looks like. So some people take this rather literally. They, they say that he more or less wants to get past the mystery, and God effectively tells him that there really is no getting past the mystery because he is the mystery. And yet, as Chesterton says, it is the mystery that makes all things clear. 
We can't look directly into the mystery any more than we can look directly into the sun. But by the light of that mystery, the entire universe is illuminated. That, I suppose, is the essence of what it means to see God's back. It's trusting the mystery and letting it transform everything else we perceive and love and do. But it takes the whole of Exodus, pretty much, to get to this point. And in particular, it is the journey towards claiming the law that is at the heart of seeing God's back. So let's talk a bit about the journey that gets us to this point. Because Moses only gets to see God's back after having gone through an awful lot of trouble. Some of that we've already covered, uh, but um, we can cover a little more. So let's join him on the journey by looking at this very strange scene back in Exodus 17. Israel has been freed by this point, and they've come again to a problem. A problem that is, this is not the first time they've faced the problem. The problem is a lack of water, which is more or less a lack of access to the source of life, a lack of access to that which flows, and thus is an indication of, of a kind of rigid, unyielding egotism in Israel. So God commands Moses to strike a rock at Horeb. That which is unyielding needs to be struck and broken so that it can give away to what is life-giving. That's kind of the symbolism of what's going on here. So when Moses strikes the rock, water flows out abundantly. Other symbolism can be taken from this image. The most obvious is that something that brings about life emerges from something that is dead. To reference another scriptural idea, the capstone that is struck becomes the cornerstone. As with all miracles, there's an idea here that an answer to a problem will tend to come from an unexpected place. I think that's something most of us have experienced from time to time is just the solution to a problem coming up from a place that we have not expected. Later on, Moses then has some trouble when God asks him to speak to a rock rather than strike it, which is an indication that wisdom means knowing when to apply familiar methods and when not to. Then in Exodus 18, Moses meets up with his father-in-law Jethro, who is the priest of Midian. And it is really clear in this scene from the outset that the two men are on very good terms, which is so great. Jethro acknowledges the God who led Israel out of Egypt as the true God, and he says, you know, that there should be no other gods put before him. And Moses then explains to Jethro how he is managing the Israelites. So he's talking about his kind of like managerial strategy. This is a, a question of, of leadership. He tells Jethro that when the people have an issue, they go to him, and then he judges between one and another and makes known the statutes of God and his laws. I'm quoting there a bit. Jethro tells Moses that he is being an idiot. Well, he doesn't say that exactly, but he points out that this is really too much for one man. One man simply cannot rule an entire nation. One man, in other words, cannot take responsibility for the lives of everyone under his charge. The job of a leader is, in, in a sense, to refuse to lead. He must instead give people the means by which they can actually lead themselves. Jethro tells Moses, and I'm going to quote, Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, oh man, Jethro is speaking to me. 
thou wilt surely wear away. And I think it's just the most amazing reminder of the radical finitude that will keep us in check. If ever you wondered, you know, how to how to stay sane, one of the most profound ways of doing it is to recognize the finitude that guides your own existence. You are built in a very limited way and you can only do so much. If you overextend yourself, you're going to basically create more trouble than it's worth. This is such a powerful exchange because here we have two great men, the priest of Midian, who has just abandoned his paganism in favor of Moses' monotheism. But while Jethro has seen something of Moses' wisdom and has effectively changed ideological sides, he doesn't abandon the wisdom that he has learned. Jethro's advice is very simple. Get help. You are, to borrow from Solzhenitsyn, a center of the universe. You are not the center of the universe. Moses, who is no doubt already feeling a bit worn out by this point, remember he is very old, um, he doesn't fight with his father-in-law, he just agrees. And in response, he actually agrees to elect judges. Already, we find here the idea of accumulating wisdom. This is obviously something that leads up to this idea of seeing God's back. Given the build-up to the law, this is a really important idea. Moses possesses some wisdom. He has learned from the wisdom of two nations. I mean, that's just a wonderful thing. He's gotten to learn from Egypt, the best of it. I mean, he's obviously noticed the worst. And he's gotten to learn from Israel. But his point of view is not going to be sufficient to edify the nation of Israel. We should remember, of course, that Moses has also, all the while, been on the receiving end of God's words. So much of what Moses has been working with is actually via divine revelation. That's really cool. I think most of us would like some of that. But Jethro's suggestion was effectively the idea that keeping divine revelation to yourself isn't healthy. In fact, it may be impossible. If you have good wisdom, that's really great. But if it can help people and show them a way to live, then it's a good idea to share it. But also suggested in the story is the idea that human wisdom ought not to be neglected. There is a kind of worldly wisdom that is legitimate. The entire biblical canon, I think, is a clear message that wisdom is found in the collaboration of the human and the divine, a kind of mediation between what is of the world, that is Egypt, and what is not of the world. That's basically uh, mediated through Israel's covenant with God. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses to give his people a message, which is as follows. I'm going to quote this at length, and again from the King James Version, because it's kind of beautiful and kind of weird, and so it's a good reminder of, of maybe might help us to look at, at things a little differently. So he says, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. There's a message here that kind of contravenes all dimensions of political correctness, because it says that those who walk with God will be peculiar treasures, they will be regarded as special in some sense, but this is not nationalist exceptionalism. 
although it is certainly some kind of exceptionalism, albeit one that insists upon sharing the blessing, there is evidence of this kind of exceptionalism everywhere. Some people are uniquely gifted to do specific tasks, while others are simply less gifted. It's one of the appallingly offensive messages of Jesus' parable of the talents that not all have received an equal measure of resources, whether in the form of personal gifts or material wealth. Life itself does not presume equality in all areas. This doesn't mean that we can now easily legitimate all kinds of moral discrimination. I think that's where it gets problematic. Rather, it's simply the recognition that we need to act in accordance with the gifts that we've been given and in keeping with the finitude of our own being. St. Paul talks about this quite a lot. Some people, teachers for example, have been given gifts that will lead them to be judged more harshly. I can somewhat vouch for this since I've received pretty harsh criticism at certain points in my life. But in facing judgment, which is I think a metaphor for facing the consequences of taking up whatever cross we happen to have taken up, we gain the material and the insights that help us to work out our faith and our way through the world. Failure, or say criticism, can actually be profoundly helpful tools for learning. The metaphor that Exodus 19 suggests is that Moses climbs up the mountain in the desert of Sinai to converse with God. Climbing up the mountain requires effort and a kind of measure of decisiveness. You don't get to the top of the mountain apart from some kind of commitment. It also takes a great deal of experience to make that kind of journey, as those of you who are mountaineers will know. You have to be prepared for it because it's going to take you some time to get to the top. You, you need some resources. You need to pack for the journey. Moses ascends Mount Sinai several times, which I think is also a super metaphor um, because it, it speaks of personal growth. Sometimes you feel like you've arrived in a good, good place, that you possess all the wisdom you need, and then you descend to try it out, to announce it to the people, so to speak. And then you realize that you, you really need to go back up the mountain again to figure everything out all over again. Um, I'm sure you've had these moments, as I have, where you know suddenly the picture that you're seeing is so clear and you feel like you understand the world. And then in about 10 minutes later, you go, oh, well, uh, I need to go and figure a few more things out. And I think that's actually really great that we keep learning from what we go through and what we encounter. At one point... Uh, God informs Moses that he will make himself known to the whole nation at Sinai, at the foot of the mountain. This has a fascinating parallel in the giving of the law. In fact, there is a sense that the giving of the law, the Decalogue, really is God's self-revelation. This may not appeal to most Christians because of a gross misunderstanding of the New Testament writer Paul, who seems, although this is only really on the surface, to set grace against the law. Just so for the record, even the reformer Martin Luther, I'm, I'm not totally in agreement with Luther on everything, but I think he was right to note that, that grace and the law are not opposites. Grace is not the law's opposite, but its context. Because actually the law itself is grace. The law is a gift. There are, however, theologians who happily and readily take up a kind of pseudo-Lutheran posture, which is really Marcionism, and reject the law as if it's some kind of outmoded, outdated framework for living. 
But this misses the fact that the law is like training wheels, in a way. When you move on from the training wheels, the basic posture that the training wheels have shaped in your ability to cycle stays there. The training wheels, in a, in a way, become invisible uh, because we have internalized what they were trying to tell us. It's not so much that we remove them, then, as that they have become a part of us. That's a pretty weird metaphor. It's like, you know, but, but hopefully the idea um, comes across. Also keep in mind that there are different kinds of laws. There are ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. As ceremonial and civil laws become less important in the New Testament, there's one system of law that goes unchallenged, which is the moral law. Which is why Paul can be this incredible champion of grace, in, in a way, and then the next moment sound like a raging Pharisee in some of his letters. He's not actually being a hypocrite, but basically telling his readers and listeners that they need to go back and reattach their training wheels. So when, when you stop succeeding at, more, at a more advanced level, take up the faith of a child, go back to the basics. I think that's a really great principle for, for most things. You know, if you're stuck in, with some kind of complex philosophical problem that you're trying to grapple with, it really helps to just kind of get back to the essentials and figure out how, you know, critical thinking works, for instance. So let's look at some of the ideas around these training wheels, which are the commandments. In Hebrew, these are referred to as mitzvot, which implies not just doing good works, but as Abraham Heschel points out, doing what God is. So the idea here is that to act in accordance with the commandments is to embody the character of God, albeit in a human way. It's to participate in goodness itself and thus become good. This isn't about some kind of heady piety or some sort of detached intellectual piety, but it is a, a kind of, it's more about an, a kind of unconscious adoption of a posture towards life. Jesus is said to have done this absolutely perfectly, which made it much easier for those around him to assume that he was in fact God's incarnation. I think it's actually really vital to see uh, the Ten Commandments as having huge relevance for us today. To me, the most obvious reason for this, before we even get into the details in the next episode, is that they represent the training of desire. Lacan claimed that desire is always formed in relation to the law, to what he referred to as the big other. And I'm not completely in agreement with Lacan on this, but I think it's not an exaggeration to say that the law plays an important part, a vital part, in training desire. As I see it, one of the great tragedies of our present age, because it's a so-called permissive age, is that desire is left weak and emaciated. Increasing infidelity in relationships is just one example of this, or the inability to follow through on a, on a job, for instance. It's a result of not having a very strong desire, in, but instead having a really weak desire. It's an inability or immense struggle to keep desire going. Instead of learning how to sustain desire, we live in a world that encourages us to really shift our focus, to find something else to desire. And I think it's kind of, it's a kind of ADHD of desire that is being encouraged by sheer permissiveness. And I'm not, I'm not saying here that what we need is some kind of newfound oppressive rigidity. The last thing we need is to 
regard rules as merely stifling or to find rules that are merely stifling. What we do need, though, is to discover what kind of freedom they allow. One of the major criticisms of the commandments is that they are phrased as a lot of thou shalt not. In other words, they, they speak in the negative. And at first this would seem like a really, like a major killjoy or some kind of encouragement uh, for us to repress a lot of things. But I find this criticism is actually rather misguided. It's much easier, after all, to say the very few things you shouldn't do than explain all the many, many things that you can do. To be free from the negatives that the laws mention is to be free from nearly infinite positives. So, I hope that makes sense. To deal with a lack of desire training, many people seek out something that fosters a kind of fake of desire, which is, they try and look for insistences that keep on insisting. And this is actually what addiction is. I think, um, in fact, that one of the reasons why addictions have increased in our age is that addiction is a kind of fake of desire. People want what they're addicted to, even though they might not actually want it. When life is without sufficient structure, addiction is becomes for a lot of people a, a kind of um, structuring thing, which is something that I see even in in my friends who smoke. They they need you know their regular smoke breaks because it really helps to to set up a kind of structure. It's but it's a it's a structure built on a kind of fake of desire. This this can apply to people who are coffee addicts too. I mean, it's like any kind of addiction has that function. But addiction functions according to the law of diminishing returns. And this is precisely what the scriptural commandments try to overcome, at least one of the things that they try to overcome. Addiction is really another word for idolatry, of course. The addicted have their sights on an idol, which is a false or poor model of desire. One of the, the primary reasons why it's important to offer strong boundaries to children, not unreasonable boundaries, of course, is that it's important that they learn to absorb a strong and healthy imitative instinct in them, because we're natural imitators, of course. This is one of the lessons from mimetic theory, and we have to learn to imitate what is good. Children will imitate you as you imitate the law or Christ or whatever ideal you happen to be carrying around with you. But children will become caught in a terrible game of competitive or even violent imitation if they have no way to furrow or channel their imitative instinct. There are good reasons for believing that the major intrusion of entitlement into the Western social world has nothing to do with ethics at all, no matter how so-called ethically it seems to be articulated. Entitlement, which is coupled with a rather warped and limited conception of human rights, reveals a completely deficient capacity to desire. Most people caught up in an entitlement mindset will be prone to joining one mass movement and then another. So there's tendency for people with very weak imitative instincts to, to become very caught up in, in group groupthink. And I suppose I'm, I'm speaking to, to some of you right now, which and so my suggestion would be to find good models and to learn to imitate uh, those models. Um, and the result of sort of very weak desire for these people is that they're forever raging against some machine or another, rather than figuring out the more practical and I think more beneficial issue of how to live a good and wholesome life. Because commandments train desire, they also set up the conditions for right relationship with God and with others. 
The great summary of the law by Jesus is is really vital here. It's just about loving God and your neighbor. And as St. Augustine noted, this is a double love. In other words, it's simultaneous. You love God while you love your neighbor and vice versa. And you really cannot love God if you are not loving your neighbor. This is far less difficult than it's often made out to be. Your neighbor is simply the next person you encounter. Uh, You just need to treat them well as you would like to be treated. This is a kind of I think, a political ethical posture. Stop worrying about the system or the government or the patriarchy, since these are really just abstractions, and they're not necessarily very helpful abstractions, since for most of us, these things have are things that we have very little say over. Your neighbor is the furthest thing from an abstraction. You can make a difference in her or his life more easily than you can, say, affect public policy. Starting with Jesus' interpretation of the law through love, which echoes ideas already put forward in the Torah, is to begin with big laws. To explain what I mean, it helps to refer to Chesterton. Chesterton argues that when you abolish the big laws, you really end up with very small laws. And this is really insightful. When you abolish big laws, you don't get endless freedom. Rather, instead, you land yourself in a world of demands. This is somewhat echoed in in the Lacanian Zizekian insistence that if God is dead, nothing is permitted. Everything becomes an injunction. Zizek argues, I mean, he's an atheist himself, that the atheist is more easily plagued by demands from all sides than the believer. How to dress, how to eat, which political gesture is preferable, um, you know, which debate you need to get caught up in next, and so on. Law in this way is really the truest kind of rebellion, as I think is most evident from the fact that it is becoming truly revolutionary and countercultural to prize fidelity over polyamory and marriage over hookup culture, say. I mean, these other things carry with them much more complex social social laws and legalities. And that, uh, despite, you know, what people say, this is supposed to represent freedom. Well, it's a rather predictable sort of um, move into a kind of non-freedom, as far as I can tell. In Taoism, the idea is put forward that when you forget the way, you land up in the world of fragments, what what is referred to as the so-called 10,000 things. With this in mind, it is really helpful to conceive of the Ten Commandments as big laws. All smaller laws are merely clarifications, and that those big laws are really guided by the largest category, which is the law of love. And as Origen noted, if the application of the law does not amount to love, then what is being applied is not the law at all. And ultimately, it is in learning from the laws that we might actually begin to properly understand what it means to see God's back. So, in the next and final episode in this series, I'm going to unpack a slightly different, but I hope beneficial reading of the so-called Decalogue, the famous Ten Commandments. So I really hope you will join me for that. If you want to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Thank you very much to those of you who do support me. And you can follow me on Twitter at Duncan Rayburn. And well, that's about it. So I hope you have a really good week. And I appreciate you listening. And I sincerely hope that you're managing the weight of whichever burden you happen to be carrying at the moment. Take care, everyone. Cheers.